My name is Jenna. Its name is Fandalites. Isn't that a beautiful name? A beautiful name for a beautiful podcast. the discovery in this book marco discovers that new kid at school david has a little blue cube he found in a construction site the escafil device which grants the power to morph the animorphs attempt to steal the device from him cluing him into its worth david makes a deal with a stranger on the internet when the animorphs attempt to intercept the handoff they end up face to face with visor three they have to retreat with David and the cube, but end up leaving David's parents to be infested by yurks. They debate whether to leave David on his own or make him an anamorph. Marco has some totally justified misgivings, but they use the cube to give him the power to morph and fill him in on their pressing new mission, to stop a group of world leaders in town for a conference from getting yurked. They witness that the blade ship abduct possibly the President of the United States helicopter, but instead of infesting him, Visor 3 acquires his DNA and sets him free. This, uh, as as part one of a three-parter, this one has one of the more Byzantine Visor 3 plots. <sighs> Byzantine Visor 3. Sorry, that just sounds like a catchy... I like that phrase. It sounds nice on the tongue. Yeah, say it five times fast. Byzantine Visor 3. But, no, not on air. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's an obscure one, and it's... Hard to figure out what the fuck his plan is. <laughs> well, I think that's on purpose, because you're not supposed to quite grasp the entirety of it until book two or possibly three. And that's fair. It's real, real, real obscure in this one. And it it's super weird that Visor 3 acquires somebody's DNA instead of infesting him when they had the resources to just snag him right there. That is a little strange. And they sort of hand wave it. I think the, the Animorphs hand wave it in the book that, oh, Visser 3 wouldn't want to put another Yerk in the most powerful man in America. I I mean... Yeah, it, that did feel really hand-wavy. It's hard to say, because Visser 3 is so miserable and bad at his job <laughs> that it's not outside the realm of possibility. It seems unlikely, though. Like, that seems like a huge... I mean, I guess they're so used to Visser 3 being bumbling and letting his ego, like, screw up all of his plans that maybe that seems like a reasonable assumption in the moment. The fact that we're even having doubts about whether or not that's true might be the most telling aspect of that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we should say uh, up front, this book is billed as part one of a trilogy. It's, as far as I know, the first book that we've read that ends in a to be continued. Yeah. And it's a it's a dicey to be continued. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is hard to resist. So uh, the, the whole arc, I guess, of this trilogy is is about this new Animorph, David. And and the f sort of the fallout, maybe that's a, a loaded word, it's an accurate one, the fallout of giving him the power to morph, even though they don't really know him or what he's going to do with it. Like, the, the Animorphs at this point have a pretty strong core set of experiences, and they all, all have connections. And for the most part, they all have homes. Uh, that they can go back to when when they're done with a mission, which is not the case for David anymore. Yeah, they have alter egos. And uh, they're sort of faced with the choice due to how fucking badly they screw up trying to steal this box back. My God, Brent. It, it's so bad. Like their first, okay, their first attempt is they fly in as birds and try to grip the cube with their little bird claws. And that, that fails because duh. 
I blame their reliance on this plan on how well the bird parachute maneuver has been working for them so far. <laughs> They're like, well, you know, birds, they could just pick up anything and take it, you know, wherever. It just, yeah, that's how birds work. Yeah, that's the buildup for the bird parachute. And this is where it goes all wrong. They got too reliant on it. It's like yeah. they don't, they don't have any, they don't have any better morph for that bird. Is there, that was, that was its own kind of frustrating. Mm. And then they go in for a second try because David's like, yeah, I put it on whatever the 90s equivalent of Craigslist was. eBay? Uh, message board? Message, message board? I don't know. AOL keyword? Big blue box? Maybe, yeah, he's in a Yahoo group <laughs> for alien stuff and he put it on there. And of course, Visor 3 finds it. They, I'm certain they have their operatives checking keywords I'm assuming that Visser 3 outbid Hecate on this. Yeah, I assume Hecate was on the line. She, yeah, got sniped at the last minute on eBay. That has to be frustrating for her. <laughs> they go in. Uh, it's so, just so frustrating, Brent. Because <laughs> they are Animorphs and they have like a billion morphs and they also have just their human bodies. Like if Marco just went in there and took the box and then left, that would have been a better plan than any of their plans, which were, we're going to do it as birds, I guess. I mean, that was sort of what they attempted to do the second time. And he set off the burglar alarm. Yeah, which is its own kind of frustrating because also... Just, I, I just think it would have been a better plan. Like, even just go in as a gorilla, punch through a wall, get the device with your gorilla hands, and then bail. So the Rachel plan. Yes. 100% the Rachel plan. Just demolish their house on purpose instead of as an accidental byproduct of having to tangle with Visser 3. Which is what actually happened. Yeah, because Marco gets held up by, first by uh, David's snake... Because of course he has a snake. Well, I'll take that back. I know a lot of snake owners who are perfectly lovely, but David is definitely the kind of creepy kid who would for sure like get really excited about feeding the snake live animals. So now I, I think it's interesting because I feel like that's entirely an inference on your part. That's fair. No, that's fair. I mean, just because he named the kid Spawn uh, and is... It, it, let's you know what let's dig into this now Brent. yeah you and me let's head to head here we spoke about it a little before the podcast i think i'm my take on on the this set of books is going to be fairly unpopular because i i'm sort of a david apologist and i find that so shocking i i definitely remember kids like david in high school the sort of like just assholes that's the best word i can I can use to condense them down, which it may, maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's the apologist part. But, but why don't you lay out your case for me, Brent? Right. So the thing is, I'm I'm trying to read this entirely as text without implying anything. David's definitely, I think, coded as one of quote unquote those kids that we all knew in high school with a cat named Megadeth and a snake named Spawn that I guess just lives in a box under his bed and runs around free. Point is, we don't actually. At this point, when they're trying to break in the first and second time, we haven't seen him do anything that particularly implies that he's like a creep. He's just a new kid who doesn't have any friends yet, who likes the same comic books as Cassie, apparently. Yeah, Cassie is excited that his snake is named Spawn, which I'm in love with. I'm in love with secret comic book nerd Cassie. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we, we don't really know anything about him. And I have to admit, I had the same reaction at first when I read it. I was like, oh, this kid who lies about his dad being an international spy and has a snake, like, of course, 
I'm glad you brought that up because I when he said that, even though I didn't remember, I, my instinct was this fucking kid's lying about his dad being a spy. Right. Turns out he's not. No, it turns out that's on the level. So that's a that's a good point. So yeah, the the earliest time that we actually see him, and I mean, okay, so when faced with the options, because they really only have two options after they're tangled with Visser Three. Visser Three's got this kid made. He's morphed in front of this kid. They've already infected the infested the parents. Yeah. Um. So the Animorphs, having drug him away, really have two options. They can one leave him be infested by the Yurks because he doesn't know shit yet. Two conscript him. Yeah. And they make the choice to conscript him into their war. They can't really even offer him a choice because once he has, once he knows, is is well informed enough to make the choice, it's too late. He can't be left to the Yerks. But they haven't really thought this through because since the Yerks know who he is, he can't be in public, which means wh- where does he live? They ha- And the best they come up with is Cassie's barn. They basically kidnapped this kid. They're forcibly keeping him from going out in public. I don't think that comes up in this book, but basically, like, they're hiding him away. They don't really have a long-term plan. And fair's fair. Like, it's they, they got a lot on their minds with, with the leaders of the free world meeting at the summit that are going to get infested with Yerks. But, I mean, try to think about this from this 13-year-old kid's perspective. He's just got all these people who have an obvious clique already. One of them yeah. immediately does not like him. Um, the rest of them sort of... They have this weird, it's a very strange dynamic. Like when they get him his first morph, they they take out a, a golden eagle that's going to be released and they take out a merlin. And Jake says, so we need you to acquire the merlin because you'll need a bird that's like small and fast. And he says, well, what if I get in a fight? I want the eagle. And yeah, he says it in kind of a dick way. But remember, this book opens with Marco being a real creep. Real, about, real creep. So, like, I don't think this is necessarily indicative of anything other than that he's a 13-year-old boy who doesn't have a lot of social skills because he keeps moving around between schools. Um, and instead of saying, well, okay, sure, take that one if, if you want a flying battle morph, but you probably need the other one too, they have, like, a weird tense standoff where they're trying to order him around and then eventually back down and let him have its way. It's just, it's a very strange dynamic. So the first thing that we actually see him do that I think leads, that, that implies that, you know, he's that sort of person is when he attacks a crow as a golden eagle. Does he attack the crow, Brent, or does he slaughter the crow? Because well, he, he kills the crow. Yeah, you're right. He kills the crow. He kills the crow for like no reason. I think from an adult perspective, I can empathize with David a little bit more because I appreciate that there are a lot of kids who are like that and they grow up and are fine. Um, They don't get the opportunity to sort of indulge some of their violent tendencies or potential for violent tendencies. Um, But the thing is, David is given the power to do so. And the first thing he does with it is kill a crow, which is some pretty... He's not in battle with the crow. And I, I mean, maybe this is another dicey morality point, but all of the other Animorphs, at least to a certain extent, even Rachel are reluctant to murder. He is in his first morph, it's his first time out, He's giddy from flying, and the way he expresses that giddiness is by killing a crow. That's 100% alarming. I mean, yeah, it's not cool that he kills the crow, but his whole world did just fall apart. His brain isn't fully formed yet, and 
the Animorphs like to talk. They like to talk a big game about how they are just trying to do the right thing. But Jake burned a dude's fucking house down. <laughs> yeah. And they they kill controllers all the time. All the time. Yeah. I, I think the thing that gets me that's different about David killing the crow is that he's not a combatant yet. He is not suffering from PTSD. He doesn't really even have a full extent of what the war is like. And that's not to justify the things that the Animorphs are doing. But for him to attack and kill that crow where he was at that moment falls so much closer to a young serial killer killing neighborhood pets than it does uh, a war, a PTSD suffering combatant doing something pretty fucked up because they're in a war and they think they have to. Right. So that's what I'm I, like. Don't get it twisted. It's very fucked up that he killed that crow. But that's an isolation. I, I know your the first instinct. and I think the way that you're supposed to take it, the way it's obviously coded in the books is the the Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy style murdering small animals like as a as an escalation. But this happens once. We've seen him do this once. We don't have any indication that he 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 owns two pets. And yeah, this may be where you're kind of getting the implication that he's the sort of person who really enjoys feeding live mice to their snake. Um, but the thing is, like, kids at this age, unless it's a pattern, this sort of stuff happens occasionally and they, like, feel bad about it and learn from it and th they grow. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, that David's not a budding serial killer. He could very well be a sociopath. There's two more books. Just that right now, he doesn't have a lot of characterization other than he's the new kid. The others are not really, like, listening to him. They don't have, they don't seem to have a ton of patience with him. Um, and they just throw him right into, you know, their, their first mission, which I get, like, they had to go through this too, but they sort of had a support network. They had each other. They had families. They had a place to go to. Yeah. yeah. And where he's coming from, all he has are these kids who he doesn't really know and who at least one of them definitely does not like him. They've already got an established social dynamic. He doesn't know where he fits. Do you, what, what do you make of K.A.'s choice to give us Marco's perspective in this first book? Mar Marco's perspective being very, very heavily biased towards this kid is no good. This is the bad choice. And really editorializing about that in his perspective. I mean, I think that it's a, a nice, I, not nice. I think it's probably a shorthand for how the audience is supposed to feel about the character. I, maybe I'm being purposely contrarian. I was just, I started to feel like, oh, this kid. And then I stopped and I went back and I flipped through and I'm like, there's nothing here, like in the actual non-Marco and like interpreted descriptions of what he's doing other than the crow, which happens after they've made the decision to give him morphine. So like, there's one thing in this book that he does that's kind of fucked up, like literally codes him as, as villainous. But I think that's probably the, the first book is, is Marco's impressions of this kid because we're supposed to identify with the existing Animorphs and we're supposed to inflect based on Marco's interpretation. I mean, I think you're making a good point. I think that the, a lot of the actual conversations that happen in this book are written in such a way that if you want to give David the benefit of the doubt, you definitely could. And the, the other Animorphs seem to. Um, they seem to be more sympathetic than Marco is. Uh, but it's hard for me not to bring both my perspective as somebody who has read the future books and has a better idea of David, but also as an adult who 
remembers tangling with kids like this and just what miserable little swats they were. So that's, once again, kids like this is like projecting. We know very little about David as a character other than Marco's impressions of him, which granted, like definitely code him as that sort of kid. But like, there's not a lot to go on here. And if he had not killed a, a crow, I'd be more inclined to, 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 to agree with you. But he does. <laughs> like, it's real bad. And it's, it's one of the, I think, the incidents that sticks out most in the whole, the whole book. Um, I mean, I think you make a great point about the fact that he, he comes from a family that moves a lot. So he's definitely had to create uh, a, a personal persona where he's not, yeah, like he's just not good socially because he doesn't ever really get the chance to practice because he moves around all the, all the time. And so it's just easier to be this sort of kid. And I think that's a fair cop. Mm-hmm. But then he kills a crow, which makes it so much harder to empathize. I guess let me let me throw it out like this. Did you know anybody, and I, I know the answer to this because we grew up in the same region, did you know anybody in high school who went hunting? Um, maybe one or two, not a whole lot. Do you think they did it because they needed to eat, or do you think that they enjoyed hunting? I think probably they were part of a culture that, I like, I don't think that they were the ones who picked up guns and were like, I'm just going to take up this new hobby. I think they came from families that hunted. I mean, it doesn't have to be guns. I know people who bow hunted deer, too. Okay, same same difference, though. Like, I don't think that they were necessarily the motivating efforts into those. So I, I guess what I'm saying, as fucked up as, as it is reading, reading it like just someone killing an animal, like, I went to school at a place where the first day of hunting season, they just literally made it a school holiday because I was one of the few people showing up. Most people were out hunting. <laughs> so Damn, Brent. Right. So I was around, I grew up around plenty of teenagers who went and killed animals for fun because they didn't need deer. Like, sure, they processed it in the meat afterwards, but they didn't. that's not why they were doing it. They didn't need deer. We had a fucking supermarket. It's a little less shocking to me, I guess, that he might do this and then immediately get embarrassed and, and make excuses. Like, just the, the one act. It's not like it's somebody's pet that he's, you know, attacking. His whole world's fallen apart. This is, like, his first time morphing, essentially. He's just got all these kids around. It's... He's getting ready to go into a life or death situation. There's just a lot going on that I think I think are reasonable excuses. Like, yes, where I am sitting now, if someone was to just go kill a bird, I'd go, that's fucked up. But like, if you really think about it, I know people who killed birds all the time uh, in high school, and they weren't called fucked up. They were called hunters, and they had a license for it. I appreciate that. I appreciate this sort of parallel that you're drawing. It. I just don't think it's what's actually happening I mean, hold on. Let me process. Let me let me process this a little. I guess the perspective I'm coming from is that because of the Marco POV and because of Marco's distaste for this kid, you're definitely not supposed to see it as something that is forgivable. You're supposed to see it as something fucked up because that's how Marco sees it. But that immediately that that sort of authorial voice saying, "Hey, this is a villainous person. You are supposed to dislike this person," makes me go, "Well, why? What are they doing exactly? This is the one thing." That makes him unlikable, but I don't think it's something you can't come back from. I mean, I think that's fair. I I don't think it's something that he couldn't not come back from. I don't think he comes back from it, though. Like, I think this is the first... I don't think this had to be the first warning bell. I think this could have been a bell that yeah. rings and then you move forward. But it really is. And and maybe that's unfair because we, we read... I read ahead to the second book. <laughs> I, I'll say two things. I'll say two things about that, that point. 
the hunting point. The first being that all of the other Animorphs went through similar experiences as David has to maybe to a lesser or greater degree. And some of them even also did kill animals in their morphs. But they did that because they were following the animal's instincts and they were under control of the animal's instincts. And they still pretty much felt pretty terrible about what they did. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see anything that suggests that David actually feels bad about what he did. In fact, he he really pushes for the golden eagle morph because it's bigger and badder and, and more forceful. Uh, and maybe that's something we can circle back and actually read through that passage again, because that might be another thing that I'm, I'm seeing through Marco's perspective. He did pick that after he'd just been told, hey, uh, we're going to fight walking salad shooters controlled by aliens intent on invading. And Marco's bragging about how much Yerk butt he's kicked. I think, but I think it's pretty clear that they're not going to fight in the bird morphs. Tobias like does I all the time. Yeah, but I, I think they, they mean they mentioned getting uh, actual battle morphs. Yeah, that's true. And they do take him to the gardens and let him pick out a battle morph. So it's not it's not like every single... He, he's, he seems to be erring towards getting every single morph that's the biggest and baddest and most powerful. And again, that's... I mean, that's kind of a Rachel thing, too. I, I would think it'd be safe to say. But I, I guess the other the other counterpoint I would have to that is... If you give somebody, if you trust somebody with something, and that can be anything, it can be the power to morph, it can be information, it can be just anything. If you're, if you're reaching out and you're saying, here's this thing, I'm going to give this to you. And they, the first thing they do with it is something that's this damaging and this upsetting and this untake backable. That's a clear sign to me that that's not a person to be trusted. He's, he's high on the joy of flying. And the way he expresses that is by committing violence and that's that's a real bad sign yeah i i guess my big my big objection to reading that much into that is that by the time he takes that act you've had two-thirds of the book basically that have been coding him as someone that is unlikable and i mean you're seeing him through marco's eyes essentially yeah yeah so i but, don't know I mean, it's it like you're not, you're not what he wrong. does you're not wrong i don't um, think you're I wrong just... either but i think we're just we're just right on other side of the middle here <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, obviously, uh, I, I remember enough to know that things do not turn out like I would hope. But I'm I'm curious to see, continuing to read from my current perspective, whether or not I think that... I mean, these are all children. Yeah. These are yeah. all children. And I, th I think, again, in better circumstances, David would probably grow up and be fine. Like, I don't think he's necessarily inherently violent or anything. His cat's named Megadeth. Of course he wants the badass bird that can, like, <laughs> dude, I mean, come on. Which bird is more metal? Of course he's going to go for that one. That's fair. I want to circle back to something you mentioned, because I think it's all, also interesting, that they there's this whole segment where they have David, he's unconscious, he, they're trying to figure out whether they should abandon him or take him in. And I'm curious as to whether or not you think they made the right choice or if there's a different choice that they could have made or, or how, how do you feel about that? Well, it's a really hard choice because it's, I mean, it is a choice between make him a slave or conscript him as a child soldier. I don't know that they like made the wrong choice necessarily because I'm, I don't know that the other thing would have turned out that well either. Uh, at this point, we still don't know if they're going to win the war. If anybody who's a Yerk controller is going to be eventually freed. And honestly, if he'd been made into a controller, they might have ended up killing him at some point anyway, since they yeah. don't view controllers as humans anymore. Which is grim, but there you go. That's war, I guess. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, I I don't know that they made a bad choice necessarily. I think that they probably handled the situation not as well as they could have after they made the choice they did. Yeah, and ideally they would have just not fucked up that mission so bad. Yeah, ideally they would have been able to get the cube and not have had to make that choice, but they did make the choice, and then, I don't know. I know that it was thrust upon them, but they had a support network. I would argue that, like, hiding him out for a while, getting him, giving him a little time to ease into the idea of this before actually like using the device on him and getting him morphs maybe take him on some milk runs before the like head of world leaders thing yeah it does seem like they're really because it's you make a good point that i didn't really think about it it, their choices are not either he's a child soldier or he is a yurk controller their choices are either he's a yurk controller or he's somebody who's aware of the battle but not engaging with it or he's a combatant right and they don't they don't choose that second option. They choose to make him a combatant. Even though Cassie was granted that second option, which arguably she earned, but when she was ready to retire, the others were just going to let her. Even though they all felt not great about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he doesn't get that choice, and arguably he really couldn't even... Like, it would be very difficult for for them to choose the second option, because where is he going to live? I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a, no different than if they give him the power to morph, because where is he going to live there? I mean, it's the same question. Like, even if he has the power to morph, where is he going to stay? It the same. The answer is the same whether they give him the power or not. I mean, I, they, I, they just throw him head first. I guess if they give him the power to morph, he has the option of staying as a bird like Tobias. He seems to be pretty okay with it. Yeah, and hypothetically, you can actually like hunt and eat, since we've more more or less determined that that works. If you're hunting in in morph. I mean, Tobias seems to be to have gotten used to it enough that he can joke about it. I didn't really think about it till you pointed it out, but they do choose to make him a combatant. Like they choose to conscript him, yeah, pretty forcibly. And I think, I mean, I think given the choice, David would probably want to fight, not because again he believes in the war, but because that's what an opportunity for power. Nah, uh, I mean, I, I I think you're once again projecting people that you knew in high school, and I can definitely Possible. see that. Because I can think of a couple people who, when I started reading this, I was like, oh, he's totally that guy. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know that there's enough textual evidence for it other than this one incident. Do you think if they gave David the choice that he would not choose to sla- engage in the war and get the, the morph power? I think he probably... Hmm... That's like, a, if they gave him a, a bus ticket and a, a wad of cash and said, get out of town, kid, do you think he would do that instead of sticking around? It's an interesting question, because I know, like, my first instinct is to say, well, he'd obviously, he'd join the war and take the morphine power, because that's what I would do. But, but and, and arguably, in that instance, he would have made the choice, which sort of frames the entire experience differently. Uh, yeah. Then, then hey, you're you're fighting in a war now. Here's your here's your gun. But I think, and and we should probably rediscuss this question next episode because I'm I'm not sure that he would have taken the morphine power if they if they really explained what fighting in the war entails. Hmm. He seems very uncomfortable um, with the near death situations that they are getting into in this book. Like morphine the roach, he was totally not prepared for. Almost yeah. got the rest of them killed because he, he'd never done it. It was insane. Um, and he had a pretty reasonable reaction, uh, I think. Uh, although, you know, we're used to the rest of the Animorphs being cool as a cucumber about it by now, where they're starting to think of human as just another morph. So we're very used to that. So it seems egregious. Like, oh my god, why is he shouting? Shut up, you idiot. But on the other hand, like, 
they make a big deal every time they morph about how fucking gross and disturbing it is. And this this book has two like extra weird morphs that yeah. I just want to talk about. The first being at one point Marco I think he's morphing a bird, is that right? Yes. Basically his fingers grow longer faster than his skin does. So uh. his skin's just sort of his fingers just burst out the end of his fingertips as bones. And that's pretty awful. <laughs> yes, it is it is fucking rough. The other one is uh, Snake Body Marco Head. He, he's, <laughs> he's morphing Spawn, and the rest of him morphs, but not his head. <laughs> so it's Snake Snake Body Marco Head. It's fucking amazing. It's like something from an illuminated manuscript. <laughs> yeah. Insane. I do really like imagining it, even yeah. though it sounds just horrible. Um, speaking of Snake Body Marco Head, we've spent like almost this whole episode talking about David. And uh, the question of, of David's characterization and, um, and and morals. But we haven't talked about the biggest occurrence in this book, which is the first instance of Animorph on Animorph Vor. God, I can't believe we got fucking 20 books in before this happened. I mean, I guess unless you count all of the flea blood drinking that happened earlier in the series. I don't think that's appropriately Vor. It's no. definitely... Some... It's definitely freaky. Yes, it's definitely weird. It's it's definitely something that you could see on, on kink.com. Yeah, we've definitely got some uh, swallowing. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. In the form of Cobra Marco swallowing wolf spider axe. Which is, Oof. yeah, the Cobra overtakes him and he just like swallows axe whole and realizes that he also got... Uh, Axe with some venom, and Axe is gonna die, and to his credit, is like, just start morphing back, just start morphing back, even though he doesn't know if he can actually, like, vomit Axe up before he explodes out of him. So, like, good on you, Marco. Yeah, you you made the right call there. Very brave call. This book also features probably the biggest fashion don't. Ooh. It's only (laughs) notable because it's fucking Rachel. Yeah. Yeah, and so I don't recall a time in the 90s where fanny packs were acceptable. Was there a time? Do we just not remember? I I don't, I don't think it was like now. I remember wearing a fanny pack on vacation in junior high, um, but I'm under no impression that it was cool, and I was not a fashionista like Rachel. (laughs) Is there a chance that the quote-unquote waste pouch that she mentions is that is, is could that be something different? Can it can't. You, it has to be a fanny pack, right? I, I cannot think of anything else descriptive, describable as a waste pouch, other than a fucking fanny pack. Yeah, unless again you're you're a tourist and you've got some sort of inner pocket that you're keeping your money in. Yeah, that's a book told you to. I mean, that thing's like a... That's called something different, though. That's not like a waist pouch. That's like a... Money belt or Yeah, something. money belt or passport holder or something. Ugh, I can't believe Rachel with a fucking fanny pack. Right. Yeah, I feel like if it was a fashion yes instead of a fashion don't, Rachel would have mentioned the... Or, well, I guess Marco is the POV character. Yeah, I mean, Rachel just wouldn't wear it. She just would not do it. Obviously, she did. God, well, Rachel must know something we don't, or K.A. knows something we don't. Really fucking rocks my world here. (laughs) The other thing that rocked my world is realizing that this book came out 
concurrent with Buffy, the vampire slayer, which means that all the books prior to this were before Buffy. Somehow that really fucked me up timeline wise. Well, I mean, we know we know now why Marco's go to to describe Rachel is Xena and not Buffy. Yeah, no kidding. Even though Buffy seems like a way closer, almost exact match. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, Rachel's 100% correct that Marco is a joxer. And if, yeah. if Buffy was his go-to description for Rachel, he'd be a Xander. Yeah, that's true. There is always that dude in those books, slash, or I guess those are both TV shows. Yeah. This book, <laughs> the those Zeppo. TV shows. There's always the Zeppo. Yeah, the Zeppo. <laughs> Poor Xander. Um, so there's, there's only a couple more things I wanted to talk about in this book. Uh, one is that there are a couple real weird slapstick scenes, and Kate Applegate kind of sneaks these in every once in a while, and I gotta say I really enjoy them. There's like a, the second time they break into David's house, it, they make specific mention of Axe like skittering across, across the linoleum trying to move fast on it and knocking everything <laughs> over with his tail because he's a fucking deer person in a house. <laughs> Yeah, he breaks a lamp. Yeah, and I, I just, I really, not just a lamp, he like knocks some shit off a desk and breaks a picture. <laughs> I, the whole thing, I, it's very good. It's a very Three Stooges-esque situation, and I, I appreciate that Kay Applegate sneaks those in, because it's not the first one we've seen by far. No, and a lot of them involve acts. Yes. Uh, it is the first one where I, I like specifically took a moment out and thought, you know what? I really appreciate these little moments of levity. I did too. And we, we get Tobias runs into like a fucking window. That was a little concerning. He sounded like he had a serious concussion. Yeah. And they, he, afterwards they say something like he was sleeping and he was like sleep thought speaking, which is its own sort of troublesome concept. Yeah. He just kept talking about Clue. Which I liked. I liked that. That was a nice addition to that scene. I mean, it was fun, but at the same time, I was like, oh, man, Tobias. Get your get your head checked. Go to Cassie. She'll take care of you. I think we previously established, at least in Megamorphs, number one, if nowhere else, that the Animorphs books follow cinematic rules for head injuries. <laughs> Just a second bump on the head, he'll be fine. Yeah, it's not unprecedented. We also have, uh, th- this is can- important canon information, we also have another occurrence of an animal getting acquired and not chilling out because of it. Yes, yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I have a theory about this. Oh, lay it on me. Okay, so we and see in this book... can you do it in verse form, since we were talking about Buffy earlier? Can you sing it, Brent? Okay. No, no, I cannot. I'm... Ask uh, my creative writing professors from college. Poetry is not my strong suit. <laughs> okay, you can just say it then. Okay. So in this, there is a scene where Marco has to acquire Spawn under the bed in a hurry when Spawn is, like, reared up the cobra, Spawn, about to strike him. And it, it does not go into the morphine trance, it just continues to flip out and flail around and, and bite, 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 which, like, good thing it had its venom sacs removed, I guess. Yeah. Which, like, is that a thing? I don't know anything about exotic animal ownership. Is that a thing? I didn't think so. I thought you just had to milk them, but that could be for, like, scientific purposes. Oh, I, I think that's snake handlers. That's the that's the um, the, the Christian sect. They, they milk before the venom, before they do the snake handling. And, like, people who make anti-venom and shit milk Yeah, milk that's snakes. true. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I assume that if you could remove them, it'd be way... I, you know, I just don't know, Brent. I guess K.A. knows way more about this than, uh, than we do. We should probably just assume that she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, she probably did research. More research than we do. Way more. Which is none. The zero yeah. research rule. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, and the snake just keeps slipping out. So my theory on this is that 
in both cases where we've seen an animal not go into the morphine trance when it's getting acquired, it's been in a state of heightened awareness. It's been uh, an adrenaline-flowing fight-or-flight type situation. In the case of the dolphin that Tobias was acquiring, he was physically injuring it by grabbing on with his talons. Uh, And in this case of Marco, like the snake was ready to attack. I don't think we've seen them acquire something that's in the process of attacking before, have we? Maybe not. So you're thinking that the attacking is part? I'm thinking it's like an adrenaline response. If the animal's keyed up already, uh, then it's not as susceptible to the relaxation caused by the morphine trance. I can see that, yeah. What was the thing Tobias... Was it a dolphin? Yeah, it was a dolphin. Okay, yeah, and he he got stuck, which would, which that, I'm certain that pain would activate an adrenaline response, yeah. Yeah, and the dolphin kept, like, diving up and down, trying to shake him off. Yeah, that's a good theory. I like it. Yeah, it it makes sense to me. Maybe we'll see it, maybe just sometimes it doesn't work, and there's a Z-space-based explanation, which I assume is part of the the Z-space-based explanation drinking game that we will eventually devise and post. (laughs) Uh, was there anything else from the book that you wanted to talk through? Did we talk about... Marco and Rachel arm wrestling? Shit, no we didn't. <laughs> but gift to the Marco-Rachel shippers. Marco uh, is... He and Rachel have some good interaction in this book. Because they, they also side with each other initially about abandoning David, even though that's not how they end up going. Yeah. Because Rachel wants to conscribe him, which they do. Um, yeah, but so no, they do have a... <laughs> Rachel and Marco do have an arm wrestling match in the uh, <laughs> it, it, at the Burger King. And uh, he claims Rachel kicks him under the table, and, and that's why she won. And maybe she did kick him under the table. I don't know, but I, I doubt she needed to. She probably no. just wanted to kick him. Yeah, I assume that that was just part part of the fun. Yeah, part maybe of... to save his ego a little, so that he can pretend that it's because she kicked him. Maybe just because she's like, you know, you're a creep sometimes, Marco. You deserve this. Yeah, this book does open with Margo being a kind of a creep. I mean, he's he's a teen boy trying to hit on somebody, so and he doesn't do good. He does not do good. Mm, he does not do good. But just once again, an example of how these are all children whose brains are not fully formed and. They're not as good as the people they will grow up to become, hopefully. Which I'm certain they'll all do. (laughs) That's bleak. (laughs) Did we already talk about how David giving out his home address on the internet to a buyer is weird? It's a bad choice. It it seems weirdly unsavvy for David. Is that something that people did in the 90s? Because, like, there's a perfectly good Burger King parking lot. In this town, it's been established literally in the same book. Like, he could meet with this person somewhere to to do the handoff. But he's like, nah, here's my home address. I Like, was this before everybody was real freaked out about teens being lured no. by people on the internet? No, I definitely remember uh, in my early an- uh, uh, internet days. I was going to say my early Animorph days. That's yeah, incorrect. Yeah. My early, my early internet days, I remember reading some sort of chain email bullshit that was about like this cop who, this is fucking weird. This is something that I believed for a long time and then remembered and thought back on and was like, that's just lies. So it was this chain letter about this girl who was talking with people on the internet and she comes home one day and there's a police officer there talking to her parents. And this police officer has just pages and pages of 
personal information that she told him because she thought they were friends on the internet. And it was all about how she was being too trusting and, and friendly on the internet. And so you, youngster out there on the internet, can't talk to people either because they might not be a cop next time. They might be a creep. And in hindsight, it's like, well, first of all, weirdly victim blaming. Second of all, <laughs> what, what fucking police program has cops talking to people that they know are young people in order to get information, in order to tattle on them to their parents. But I definitely remember that was a thing. That was like a copy uh, copy pasta, early, early copy pasta. I assume it's some sort of dare offshoot. I mean, it fucking would be, right? <laughs> then the only other thing that I want to leave everybody with is the horrifying thought. Uh, there's a scene here in this book in, in which the lunch lady calls... Marco, little Marco. <laughs> so I, I want to leave everybody with the really unsettling thought that Marco grew up, became a hardcore conservative, and got into politics. <sighs> he can't tell you his last name, but it's Rubio. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's not outside of the realm for for Marco's story arc. I, you know, I hope it's not. It's horrifying, like I said, but like she called him little Marco and I was like, oh, fuck me. I mean, remember, Brent, we have the power of canon because we're more canon than canon. I don't want so. that to be canon. Well, think about think about what you say before you say it, Brent. <laughs> I refuse. That is counter to our purpose on this podcast. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for this week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Next week, we'll be reading book 21, The Threat, which is book two of the David trilogy. Uh, so join up for that. I'm sure we're going to have probably most of that episode dedicated to talking about David's character as well. Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. Hit us up online, fandalites.com, at fandalites on Twitter, fandalites at gmail.com, fandalites.tumblr.com on Tumblr. Thanks to Justin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. And until next time, remember to be continued. <laughs>